0: to the church. So I call your attention this morning to Christ's church. We notice, first of all, her glorious identity. Secondly, her divine gathering. And finally, her earthly manifestation. In the first place, as we consider the glorious identity of Christ's church, we have to understand her as Christ views her, in distinction from what we might see of her in the midst of this world. And to that end, we must remember, as is the case with many theological concepts, to make careful biblical distinctions, also when it comes to the term church. The Bible, after all, uses the term church in many different ways, as do we. You might have said to your children this morning, it's time to go to church, by which you were referring to coming to this building at 707 East 57th Street in Loveland, where the church meets. You might refer to the church in the same sense as the term is used in Acts 15, verse 4. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, where the church refers to the members of the congregation at Jerusalem, or at least those gathered there at the time. And you might also remember the form of ordination of elders and deacons where there is reference to Matthew 18, verse 17, and the unfolding of the steps of Christian discipline that begins with a member of the congregation approaching another seeking repentance. And then if that positive fruit is not seen, the member takes a witness or two. And the form, then we read, and if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And the form explains the meaning there is not that we, we tell it to all the members of the congregation, but the elders to whom are given the oversight of the church in that place. So there are different ways in which the term church is used. But the fundamental meaning of the church is the assembly or gathering of Christians. The two terms used in the Old Testament, while having slightly different connotations, both speak of the church as an assembly or congregation of those called together. In the New Testament, there's one term that's consistently translated church, the term ecclesia, from which we get the terms ecclesiology or ecclesiastical. And that term simply translated is the called out one or those called out, and the idea then is that the church is defined as those called out of the whole human race into the fellowship of God through Jesus Christ. The church, therefore, is not identified merely by those who call themselves Christian. It isn't an institution merely in name. The church is the assembly of those whom God has called into the fellowship of his own covenant life and family, and therefore those who are united to Christ by a true faith. The church then receives its glorious identity because of its union with Christ. The church, reflecting the figures of speech used in Scripture, is an organism, whether the body, the branches of the vine and tree, or the bride of Christ. As an organism, the church has one life, that which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from the head which is Christ, there is no life in the body. Branches have no life apart from the tree. The bride is not apart from her union to the bridegroom. So even in the passage we read this morning, First Peter 2, there is that organic idea underlying this passage which demonstrates that Only those who are one with Christ by faith constitute Christ's church. So 1 Peter 2 verse 5, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The temple And the people of God are identified with the people of God spoken of as stones in this spiritual house. Now you realize that a building is not a living organism. Stones are not living creatures. But here the stones are identified as living stones. They are joined to the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ, joined to him by the function of faith and thus forming a spiritual priesthood. So also here the church is identified as that spiritual organism united to Christ. Verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, And holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you bear in mind that the church is an organism gathered throughout history, then you realize that what we see of that organism is very limited. That's why when we confess, I believe, and Holy Catholic Church, we're making a confession of faith. We are making a confession of faith concerning the church as Christ sees her and loves her. We see our own congregation. We see churches all around us. We have fellowship to some degree with our sister congregations, but we do not see this holy Catholic Church of Christ. We believe it. We believe that the Church is holy. That's how Christ views her, perfectly consecrated to the glory of God. But what we see, is very imperfect. We see much sin. We see that not so much in churches around us. We see that sin very close. We see that sin within our own congregation. And that's true because we ourselves are sinful. I spoke with a young woman recently who had left our churches with her husband in this recent schism that took place. She told me they made a huge mistake. She was looking for the perfect church. And what she found was that she was caught up in the delusion of deceivers. Who found some real faults in our churches, but who magnified them and exaggerated them and soon leveled slanderous misrepresentations against us to justify their own unbiblical behavior. I encouraged her to return, as I did with her husband, but at the same time I reminded her that we will not find a perfect church on this side of heaven. We certainly don't find it in our churches. That's why, as we will find in the next question and answer of the Catechism, we must be given instruction concerning the communion of saints and the importance of contributing to the upbuilding and strengthening of the church because there are always those given over to the workings of Satan who are set on tearing it down, focusing only upon the imperfections and, yes, sins of the church, but not taking a proper biblical perspective nor approach at perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 nor endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 verse 3. But as Christ looks at his church, he sees the holiness that reflects his own relationship to her. He sees her as he has gathered her from the beginning of history, and as he continues to gather her now, one body gathered from various nations of the world, which is reference to her Catholicity. You and I know that. We confess that Catholicity of the church. We know that neither skin color nor ethnicity nor nationality matters when it comes to those who are members of Christ's church. But we don't experience that much yet, do we? The church from that point of view is the object of faith as revealed in Holy Scripture. The membership of the church is all those who belong to Christ by faith, from Adam and Eve until this present time, including those yet to be gathered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God as he sees his church in Christ from eternity. They are those whom Christ looks upon as objects of his love, for whom he gave himself, And whom, in the words of Ephesians 5, he nourishes and cherishes. So it is, as we heard in Article 27 of our Belgian Confession, that this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world and yet is joined and united by heart, with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same Spirit. The gathering of this glorious church is a divine work. And that's the truth emphasized by our Heidelberg Catechism. The Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends and preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life. You and I don't make the church. Yes, we have a calling to confess our faith and to show by our confession and walk that we are members of Christ's church, The Belgian Confession in the second part of Article 29 emphasizes that calling this way. With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith. And when they have received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, Passion and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in Him. That's our calling as members of Christ's Church, but the church's existence is not determined by those who decide to attach themselves to Christ and call themselves Christ's Church. The church doesn't exist if only you attach yourself to Christ. Christ gathers his church by his spirit and word. Notice it's not without reason that the spirit is mentioned first. As I mentioned in my introduction, the gathering of the church belongs to the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ gathers his church by his Holy Spirit. And that gathering begins by the Spirit making alive that which was dead. That's the wonder work of regeneration. That work by which the Spirit unites us to Christ belongs to the gathering of the church. Scripture indicates that the Spirit often works that wonder in the womb. That's why when we consider the sacrament of baptism in a few weeks, we're going to see that children also are included in the covenant and church of Jesus Christ. And yet it is only when the Spirit applies the Word of God to us that we consciously embrace by faith the wonder of our being members of Christ's church. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel, by which faith we confess that I am and forever shall remain a living member of Christ's church. And that's our comfort, too, as members of Christ's church. Because the gathering of the church is a divine work, we may also be assured that the defense and preservation of that church is a divine work. How we need that assurance when we see the church under such attack in our day. The church's preservation does not depend upon us. The same Christ who gathers his church by his spirit and word is the same who rules over all for the sake of his church. He who gathers his church says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. But let us also notice that Christ's gathering of his church is a work that has its source in eternity. Those whom Christ gathers are those chosen to everlasting life. We may say in a sense that the foundation of the church is the doctrine of election. What an awesome truth is the truth spoken of in terms of a church chosen to everlasting life. Mind you, that isn't set forth in our catechism as as an abstract doctrine. It underlies the confession that I am and forever shall remain a living member of Christ's church. The truth of God's sovereign election of a church in Christ is a truth set forth throughout Scripture in numerous passages, including the chapter which we read, 1 Peter 2. There we are reminded that Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, is elect, verse 6. And that's a confirmation of what we read already in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. That the reference there is to the promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is evident from Matthew 12, verse 18, where the text is directly applied to Christ as the fulfillment. He is the elect as the head of his people. Those people are further defined in 1 Peter 2 as those who believe on him. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. In other words, not all belong to that church chosen to everlasting life but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That truth, if we truly understand it, has to demolish any pride that might cling to us. In fact, if you truly know the wonder of this doctrine of election, you know what Philippians 2 verse 3 means, as Reverend Engelsma preached a couple weeks ago, in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves you and I have done nothing to distinguish ourselves from the unbelieving and ungodly, to obtain our place in Christ's church. We've done nothing. We stand with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, and we confess Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, wherein he hath made, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Christ will gather his church, making known in that way the mystery of God's will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that God has chosen me as a member of that church, that he has chosen me to life everlasting, is amazing beyond comprehension. Finally this morning, and this does not mean of lesser importance than the other two points, we must consider Christ's church in her earthly manifestation. That we confess that I am and forever shall remain a living member of Christ's glorious church means that I belong to that church now as it comes to manifestation imperfectly in this present world. There's tremendous significance to this issue, especially when you consider the error of those who separate themselves from Christ's church, either deceiving themselves that church membership isn't important, or finding so much fault with any earthly manifestation of Christ's church that they think that they cannot belong. Christians may not live in isolationism, which is devastating even to family life. When the Bible speaks of the church in the organic terminology of a body, you realize that imperfections in the body, which we all have, do not make it any less a body. When the Bible speaks of the church as Christ's bride, you recognize from that figure that No matter how imperfect the bride might be, she's still the bride. Yes, there is a particular calling that the church bears in the midst of this world as she represents her bridegroom or as she functions as the body of Christ. That the catechism will address at least in part in the next question and answer of Lord's Day 21. But when we consider the life of the church and our relationship to and within the church, we do well to ask the question, how would God have us live? And the answer, very simply put, is he would have us live in relationship to the body. 1 Corinthians 12 spells that out. We are to live in relationship to the body. But God's gathering us to live as members of and in relationship to his church has tremendous implications and blessings. That means, among other things, that we belong to and benefit from a church where God's appointed office bearers govern us and seek our spiritual welfare. It means... That we recognize the church as our family, the family of God. Our flesh and blood families are but microcosms, little models of the family, which is God's. And that means we view our own families within the context of God's covenant promises and the callings he gives us as members of the church, we have to bring up our children in that knowledge that the church is our family. Our life centers around the church. But we look for the spiritual well-being, not only of our offspring, but of those who are members of the household of faith with us in this congregation. It also means that while we are members of a congregation in a given location, we recognize the communion that we enjoy with other congregations of like precious faith. And we seek to nurture that unity and fellowship that we enjoy together. It means as well that as we live our lives in the various callings God gives us, we live each week in the regular cycle of rest and work as God has appointed for us. We recognize the importance of gathering on the first day of the week in the fellowship of our Redeemer to reset, to calibrate our lives to the life and word of the risen and exalted Christ. So confessing the truth concerning Christ's church, we realize that we have a calling to affiliate with that church as she comes to expression in a given congregation and location where God calls us. But the question still remains. Given the many different manifestations of Christ's church, or those who go by the name church, how are we to determine where we are to have our membership? Where we are to find our fellowship with those who belong to Christ's church? The catechism doesn't really address that question. From a certain point of view, the question was not so difficult at the time the catechism was written. In those early years of the Great Reformation, when one came out of the apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church, there would be a very limited choice when it came to the question, with whom should I affiliate when it comes to expressing my membership in Christ's church? There were basically those churches that followed the reform led by Martin Luther, or those churches that differed from and sought more extensive reform than Luther, while still able to have dialogue and some degree of fellowship with him and his followers. I speak now of the churches of the Reformation led by men such as William Farrell Martin Butzer, John Calvin. If you lived in Switzerland, or the Lowlands, or the, the Palatinate, that area of southwest Germany where the city of Heidelberg is found, you would find yourself aligning with the Reformed churches. But we all know through the centuries... There have been endless divisions in the church as manifest in this world. So where do I belong? It would be easy enough to say, well, this is where I've been baptized. This is the church where I've been raised, so this is where I belong. But we each must realize that church membership means more than simply belonging to something that calls itself church. What does the congregation stand for? The catechism points us to a fundamental necessity when it comes to membership in a congregation that represents Christ's church. I refer now to the expression, agreeing in true faith. Agreeing in true faith. Christ's church is manifest by agreement in true faith. That's why Jude exhorts those to whom he writes, in verse 3 of his inspired epistle that she should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So the Belgian Confession gives us careful instruction in Article 29 concerning our membership in Christ's church as that church comes to manifestation in this world. It recognizes that while there is no perfect church this side of heaven, there are differing degrees of purity in churches found in various locations around the world. And that that is a reality is made plain also in what is revealed to us concerning the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So our church membership is to be formed by our conviction that the church where I must belong is most faithful to the true faith revealed in Holy Scripture. And so I say for myself, this is where I belong. To say of any given church this is the church that to my knowledge is most faithful to the true faith once revealed to the saints is not a matter of pride. It could be if only we're looking at the truth intellectually but if that were true We are exposed as hypocrites, those who are not even members of Christ's church. To say, however, I belong here, because to my knowledge and by my careful consideration in the light of the scriptures, this church is most faithful to the truth of the word of God cannot be a matter of pride when we see how affected by sin is even our own congregation. The fact that God has and continues to preserve us upon the foundation of the gospel is pure mercy on his part. We know his chastening hand. We humble ourselves before him, longing to be more faithful in representing the holiness of his majesty. But we must also have a zeal for his truth and his glory. So Article 29 of the Belgian Confession sets before us the marks of the true church as that guide by which we determine where we belong in bringing to expression the wonder of Christ's church. The first section of Article 29 reads this way, We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church. Since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet not of the church, though externally in it, but we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves the church. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in the punishing of sin. In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which... No man has a right to separate himself. That's our guide for church membership in this fallen world with its imperfect churches. Is that why you are affiliated with this congregation? If that's the case then you must know it to be your calling faithfully to seek the spiritual welfare of this flock. Amen. Our gracious Father, when we contemplate the place Thou hast given us in Thy church, We are filled with gratitude to Thee, deeply humbled, because it's as sinful people that we occupy our place in the glorious body of Christ. We pray that we may more and more look to Thee Sanctify us by thy spirit and word. And give us, Father, to praise thy holy name with thanksgiving for what thou hast given us in Jesus Christ as members of thy family for Jesus' sake. Amen.